If you're not already there, would you mind turning to Acts chapter 9? Acts chapter 9. Doug and I didn't plan um, exactly which hidden figure I would do after his Sunday morning sermon, but it turns out that the theme of this hidden figure that we're going to be looking at overlaps very well with what was preached this morning. So in many ways, tonight could be seen as an epilogue or an addendum to this morning's sermon. And tonight we have the opportunity to briefly consider the next hidden figure in our series, Ananias. Ananias. The reason why Ananias is a hidden figure is because we only learn about him in the context of Paul's narrative. We only learn about him in the context of a narrative that's really about someone else. It's about Paul and his conversion. Ananias is only mentioned here in Acts chapter 9. He is mentioned again in Acts chapter 22, but that's in reference to Acts chapter 9. So technically there's nothing new in Acts chapter 22. There are only a few lines given to Ananias before he walks off stage, while nearly the rest of the book of Acts, about 18 or 19 chapters, are devoted to Paul. So Ananias is well positioned to be considered as a hidden figure. He doesn't play a large role in this narrative. But what I hope we'll learn from this short devotional time in Acts 9 is a simple truth, a simple truth, very much a truth that Doug expressed this morning in 1 Corinthians 4, and that is that being a disciple of Jesus is difficult. Being a disciple of Jesus is difficult. It's risky, it's tough, it's even dangerous at times. Being a disciple often involves doing the hard thing. And we need to remember this truth because we live in an age where the God of this world is comfort and the heart of the Christian is ever tempted to cave in to that comfort, to throw in the towel, to give up, to go with the flow and do the easy thing, to do what everyone else is doing at the expense of sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. So we need a reminder of the difficulty of discipleship from the example of Ananias, and that's what I trust we'll see. And we'll do this by asking two simple questions. Like we did a few weeks ago with Epaphras, we'll ask, who is Ananias? And secondly, what can we learn from his example? Who is Ananias? So like we did with Epaphras a few weeks ago, we had to clarify that Epaphras is not the same person as Epaphroditus because they have similar names. But tonight, our problem is compounded because not only is there a similarly named person, there are two other Ananiases within the book of Acts. So just to clarify, the Ananias we're considering is in chapter 9 of Acts. Not the Ananias that Doug mentioned this morning in chapter 5, the husband of Sapphira. He died in chapter 5, so if he was here in chapter 9, that would be quite awkward. And not Ananias, the high priest of Acts chapter 23. He's the high priest who commands that Paul be slapped. All right? So that's not the hidden figure that we're considering. We're considering Ananias of chapter 9. He's a devout Jew. The Ananias we're considering tonight is described as a Jew in Damascus who is devoted to the law and is well respected by the Jewish community. But there's a more important point to make about Ananias that I think will help us when we later ask what we can learn from his example. And that is that Ananias was a disciple in a difficult situation. Ananias was a disciple in a difficult situation. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. It says, But Saul, remember this is Saul later referred to as Paul the Apostle, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder 
against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, the way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So do you really see how this chapter is set up? It's set up with a sort of dangerous context. Paul, this this zealous Pharisee, this one who was persecuting the Jews, the one who was there when Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 7, he is here still breathing threats and murder against the church. Now, we know what happens in the narrative between verses 3 and 9, but Ananias doesn't know that. And so we continue reading. Let's pick up in verse 10, the next paragraph, to see this connection. Verse 10 says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Just that. So you see how the chapter starts. It starts by saying, Saul is breathing threats and murder, and he's hunting down the disciples at Damascus. And then in verse 10, we're introduced to Ananias, a disciple at Damascus. So Ananias is really positioned in this this tense, dangerous situation. It's clear from the context that we should sense the tension in the narrative, the difficulty of the situation for anyone who is a disciple of Jesus, but of course for Ananias as well. So Paul is on his way to Damascus to hunt down the disciples of Jesus, to kill them, to threaten them, to murder them. And within that dangerous context, Ananias is presented as one of those disciples. And what happens with Ananias in the midst of this difficult situation? We'll look at verses 11 and 12. It says that the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. So what's, what's happening with Ananias here? He's being told to go and bring healing to the man who has come to bring threats and murder. That's what Ananias is being told to do. And Ananias clearly knows this about Saul. If Ananias had known that Saul had met the risen Savior on the road to Damascus, he would not have said what he's about to say next. Take a look at verses 13 and 14. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here, in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who, are, all who call on your name. So Ananias is really sensing the difficulty and the danger of the situation that he's now been placed in by the Lord giving him this command. And whether or not he's being disobedient to what the Lord has said here, the text doesn't really say. He doesn't get a rebuke from the Lord. But what he does get is he gets a repetition of the same command where the Lord says, go. So in verse 11, the Lord told him to rise and go. And then in verse 15, the Lord presses him and says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What would you have done in that situation? If you were Ananias, you know that there is this assassin of the Christians out there hunting them down in your city. He's here in Alberton. And the Lord tells you, go to him, lay your hands on him, pray for him. We know what happens next. He gets up and he goes. He simply obeys the Lord. He's faithful 
We know what happens. Paul, Saul regains his sight and is baptized. He's welcomed into the fellowship of the believers. Look at, look at verse 19 with me. It says, Saul took food and he was strengthened. And then it says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Just that far. So do you realize what's happened in the narrative? Just summarizing the beginning of chapter 9, verse 10, and now verses 19. We could summarize this whole section actually with a sort of chiastic structure. Remember, Stuart told us about that last week, Sunday morning, where we could say that Saul hunts the disciples, Saul meets the Lord, Saul meets Ananias, and then Saul joins the disciples. There's been a complete inversion of the situation, thanks to the intervention of the Lord and the faithfulness of this hidden figure, Ananias. So the Lord has used this hidden figure, even in the difficulty of being a disciple. So this is Ananias in a nutshell. This is who he is. This is what he's, he's known for. But now what should we learn? What should we learn about Ananias from his example in this narrative? How does the example of Ananias instruct us, and how might we apply this to our lives? Well, the first thing I think we should note is that the difficult task, the difficult task that Christians are called to do is not always a glamorous task. That's a simple point we've really been trying to make as we've been considering the hidden figures, but here it's, it's front and center. The difficult task is not always glamorous. As we noted earlier, the amount of text dedicated to Ananias is quite low. There's just, just a few verses given to Ananias. The narrative is really about God's purposes through Saul to the Gentiles and the rest of the world. Nor is Ananias especially praised or immediately rewarded for his actions. He just moves off the scene. We don't really know what happens to Ananias after this. Nonetheless, his faithfulness in the midst of a difficult situation is put on display. That's what teaches us and instructs us that doing the difficult task is not always glamorous. We learn often in, in the media and in our day-to-day -day living, we learn about the grand undertakings of some, some business leaders or CEOs, or we hear about a major advancement in the field of science or medicine, or perhaps the incredible achievements of some athlete. And we are naturally drawn to those examples because we realize how much hard work was put in. We admire them for how they've, they've pursued in the midst of such difficulty. But what we learn from Ananias is that doing the difficult thing will not always be glamorous. Those business leaders that we know about, those scientists, those athletes, we know about them. They're in the headlines. But what Ananias has done, what we are called to do as Christians, won't always be on the front page. It won't always reach the headlines. It may not be announced upon completion. We get this idea from the media and Hollywood that doing the hard thing will always be noticed, rewarded immediately in the present, and praised. But sometimes the difficult thing to do is far more hidden and unnoticed. It's far more mundane. Getting up early enough to read our Bible, clicking send on a message to take an unbelieving friend to coffee, transferring money into someone's bank account who you know is struggling, not losing your temper. These are not things that the media praises as great acts of diligence. And yet this is what the Lord honors, as we see in the example of Ananias. These are the difficult acts of faithfulness that our culture doesn't put a spotlight on, but they are nonetheless commanded by our Lord. So for those of you who are being faithful 
in the difficult tasks the Lord has put under your care. Take encouragement from the example of Ananias. You may at times wonder whether the difficult thing you are doing is worth doing at all if there is no immediate reward. What's the use? It's so difficult. It's dangerous. Why should I continue? But remember that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. He sees and he knows. And you may not even know the consequences that your ministry may have in the lives of other people. Whether or not Ananias knew who Paul turned out to be is an interesting question to ponder. But of course, we, we know the full story. So that's one thing we learned about the example of Ananias, that doing the difficult thing is not always glamorous. But the second thing we learn about Ananias' example is the simplicity of obedience. The simplicity of obedience. The narrative before us is meant to display the obedience of Ananias to the word of the Lord. The Lord calls him very much the way the Lord would have called the prophet Samuel, the way the Lord called Moses, the way the Lord called Isaiah, and they say, here I am. And the Lord gives them a command. They push back against it. Lord, I don't know if I can do this. And yet the Lord reiterates his command. He repeats the command, rise and go. And the way that Ananias responds is instructive to us. He rises, he departs, and he goes to the house of Judas to do that difficult thing. And when Ananias did this, he didn't chart out a master strategy. He didn't put together a committee. He didn't make a social media announcement. He didn't read four books on how to evangelize a Pharisee and then obey. He simply departed and obeyed. That's all the text tells us probably shaking as he went. The reason I make this point is because I believe that many Christians, and myself included, tend to overcomplicate our response to the commands of the Lord. I'm not saying that there aren't complicated situations that are difficult to untangle, but there are so many commands that we often overcomplicate in our application. We get so bogged down by the processes, strategies, and philosophies of the Christian life that we have no room for simple acts of obedience. That's not honored. It's got to be done in some spectacular way. It's got to be the best or it's not worth anything. It's like we get stuck in this analysis paralysis. So we add this, we add that, we do this, we do that, all the while not doing the thing we were actually commanded to do in the first place. Perhaps you're unable to do the difficult thing because you're too busy doing unimportant or unnecessary things. Maybe this thing is difficult because there are so many other things on your plate. And I want you to hear this clearly. I'm not saying, and I don't think this text is saying, that the emphasis here is just do more. Just do more. We only have, in Acts chapter 9, one thing that Ananias did. The point is not to do more. For some, you may be so busy doing other stuff that you aren't able to do the simplest thing that the Lord is commanding you. In fact, I was, I was chatting to a friend about this recently in relation to exercise and, and productivity. And uh, he's the kind of guy who doesn't do things in half measures. Everything he does, he has to do perfectly. If he's interested in something, he'll aim to be the best at it. And he, and he, is, and he is very impressive in his sports and his, his fitness and all those kinds of things. But uh, what he'll end up doing, and this is something I'm guilty of, I'm sure many of us are guilty of, <clears throat> is that he'll read more books on how to do something than he'll spend time doing the thing itself. And we laughed as we said that. He'll spend more time watching YouTube videos about the perfect running technique or the anatomy of the human body with a tennis stroke than he will spend on the tennis court or running. And I don't know if I'm the only one, but who else has ever spent more time 
getting ready to run than actually running. I got my shoes on. Okay, I've got to drink some water. I think I should take a bit of a nap first. I'm feeling a bit tired. I've got to send these messages first. Or who of you has spent more time watching videos on how to study the Bible than actually studying the Bible? Something that we know is so basic to the Christian life. We feel like we, we, we can only do it if we can do it perfectly. And we abdicate doing it at all. Maybe we've spent more time researching the marks of a healthy church without actually doing anything to make the church more healthy. I think many of us can learn from the example of Ananias here. Not in relation to fitness or productivity, of course, but in relation to the Lord. When the Lord commanded him, he obeyed. He had a simple obedience. So ask yourself, what is the Lord commanding me to do that I'm avoiding doing because it's difficult? What is the Lord commanding me to do that I'm putting off because it's difficult? It's dangerous. It's tough. It's awkward. What aspect of my walk with Jesus involves some challenge which I'm struggling to obey because it's difficult? And as helpful and convicting as is the example of Ananias, we would do well to remember why he obeyed his Lord and why we should, as we conclude. Because of what Jesus did on the cross and over the grave. That's why he obeyed the Lord. The prime character throughout chapter 9 is the Lord. The word God is mentioned, one, in reference to the Son of God, whom Paul proclaims. But the Lord is mentioned. He's the one in control of this, this whole narrative. He's the one who confronts Saul. He's the one who speaks the narrative. And he's the one who's, who is proclaimed. If death were still our greatest enemy, if our sin had not been dealt with, if we had no loving father who welcomed us into our family, then we would have much to fear and many dangerous and difficult situations to avoid. But because Jesus walked head first into the storm center of God's wrath, we need not fear any earthly harm. Let us follow our Lord when he commands. Let us simply obey. Let us be true disciples, for a disciple is not above his master. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us to follow you. Help us to follow your son, Jesus, even in difficult situations. Thank you for the example of Ananias. And although he's a hidden figure, we thank you for giving us this account of his simple obedience. I pray that we would be obedient, that we would, out of gratitude for the gospel, out of gratitude for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, that we would live lives that please you, even when it's hard and difficult. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.